Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, good evening, everyone. Welcome to Science at the Theaters, putting carbon in its place, sponsored by the Friends of Berkeley Lab and co-sponsored by the Berkeley Energy Resources Collaborative. My name is Jeff Miller, and I am head of Berkeley Lab's Public Affairs Department. When planning our Get Smart About Carbon series last summer, we thought a lot about how we would close out this, the final night of our uh, series installment on carbon. We wanted to be sure that when you walked out of the Berkeley Rep Theater, you knew how big the carbon problem was and how great uh, our scientists are, of course, but also what you could do as a consumer, as a community member, as a citizen, to actually stem the tide and turn off the gas, greenhouse gases, of course. Uh, tonight, we're going to try very hard to deliver on that promise and taking you down this path of knowledge, which uh, has many twists and turns, as you will learn, are three Berkeley Lab scientists, uh, Eric Massonet, Cindy Rainier, and Ian Walker, who are seated here in front of me. All of them are members of Berkeley Lab's Energy and Environmental Technologies Division. Uh, a quick reminder, too, that there are other local organizations besides the lab that can help you sustain the sustainability momentum. Uh, one example is the Berkeley Ecology Center, which hosts free climate action workshops. And I believe someone is here from that organization tonight. If you would please stand, make yourself known. Do we see her anywhere? I can't see any of the lights. Okay. So you can talk to Deborah after the, afterwards in the lobby outside if you want to learn more about that organization. Uh, lastly, for those uh, who are unfamiliar with the program, uh, each Berkeley Lab scientist will speak for about 15 minutes, and then we have a Q&A. Uh, we go out into the audience, we raise the lights, and some of you I hope can stay, many of you I hope can stay for the Q&A. Some of you, if you can't, please catch the, uh, the Q&A session on YouTube, which we uh, post to our site. It's actually quite worthwhile. We suspect there will be lots of questions from whoever is here, and please keep your questions short. I'm a pretty nice guy, but I have been known to move things along. Uh, one other thing, a thank you to Home Depot and Richmond for our props tonight. They may seem a little obscure and odd, but they actually make sense, uh, as you will find out before the evening's over. Uh, and then lastly, I want to uh, kick off the evening with a, a debut, actually, a cinematic debut of a cartoon that our friends at Expression College for Digital Design created for us last summer. We had a what we called a Carbon Smackdown lecture series, which again is available for you to watch on our YouTube site. Uh, these lectures uh, were about a number of, of, of carbon reduction technologies that the lab is famous for. And uh, our motif was this wrestler, a Berkeley Lab wrestler, and I thought that it would be appropriate to get you all in the fighting mood uh, for this evening's event. So I'm going to uh, run this shortly, and then we will uh, begin the program.
I'm gonna knock you down to size, Carbon Boy. So we are going to have a little text voting, so please pull out your cell phones. Ah, you didn't know about this. We normally tell you to turn your cell phones off, but now we're going to encourage you to use them. So what is the average quantity of CO2 emissions generated by each American every year? You need to uh, text to 22333 and then choose your options. So. Sorry. See? All right, so uh, the last one is 212203. 13 metric tons is 212202. 3 metric tons is No one's going to choose three? No? Ah, uh, uh. it's a horse race. Ah, yay! You're so wrong. Now that you've voted. <laughs> Voting twice, so we're not in Chicago. Okay, we're going to... Well, this is a smart audience. The correct answer is 19 metric tons. So, yay to the audience. And now we will have our first speaker, Mr. Massonet. Please come up. Please welcome. Thank you. Let me make sure this is on. So... Jeff, I think you may have skewed the results there a little. I don't know if we would have gotten any threes uh, had you not put out the plea for three. But, um, you know, just to put this in the context, yeah, <laughs> this is indeed right, or it's close to right. And I'll talk a little bit about what makes up this number for the average U.S. citizen. But, you know, the challenge for us, just so we can see, is to get here, from here. And hopefully, by the end of the night, you'll have some idea of how to do so. So uh, my name is Eric Massonet. Um, I work in the International Energy Studies Group. Uh, I focus on something called life cycle assessment, which these days has become more or less synonymous, synonymous with this idea of a carbon footprint. So what I hope to do is tell you a little bit about, a little bit about uh, how life cycle assessment works, its relationship to carbon footprinting, what our carbon footprint looks like for the typical U.S. household, and then also some things we can do to reduce our carbon footprint. So... Let's start off with this very informative graph. So what this graph shows is the makeup of the typical U.S. household carbon footprint in the United States. Uh, these data are as of 2004. And uh, this number 19, which we just voted on, is right down here. This is the average carbon footprint for U.S. persons. Uh, and the average for a household, we've got about 2.6 persons per household in the U.S., is about 50 metric tons of CO2 per year. So this graph was generated by some colleagues uh, whom we work with at Carnegie Mellon University who have been looking at carbon footprinting science for a long time. 
And uh, basically the breakdown looks like this. Um, if we take up all of these 50 metric tons, about a quarter of it is attributable to our home energy use. This is powering our appliances, fueling our furnaces, uh, running our AC units. Uh, about 30% of it is attributable to our private transportation activities, driving a car, taking an airplane. Um, what I focus on is this chunk of the pie right here, which incidentally is the largest one um, in this accounting methodology, and this is what we call indirect carbon emissions. These are the carbon emissions that are associated with the goods and services that we purchase on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, in other words, these are sort of hidden carbon emissions that are embodied uh, in the products we buy, uh, it's a result of the energy it takes to produce the things we purchase, to provide the services that we use in our daily lives. And this part of the bar chart shows how this piece of the pie is broken up. Um, so we've only used a few key categories here. Um, and it's sort of frustrating that the largest contributor to our indirect carbon footprint is something called miscellaneous goods and services. Uh, but I can tell you, I went back to the data and looked through those, and they really are miscellaneous. It's th things like toilet paper or nursery products for the home or uh, power tools that are kind of hard to lump into any aggregate meaningful categories. Uh, but if we go up the ladder here, we can see that some of the largest contributors to our so-called carbon footprint, indirect carbon footprint, Healthcare services, uh, health insurance, obviously, uh, health insurance companies uh, have to reside somewhere in commercial buildings with data centers. We've got hospitals, doctor's offices. Uh, the next highest one is food and beverages. And this is where we focus a lot of our attention when it comes to carbon footprints. And I'll talk a little bit about this whole idea of the carbon footprint of food and how we can reduce it. Uh, if we move up the chain from there, restaurants, hotels, home furnishings. So this gives us a way to sort of assign carbon emissions to the goods and services we purchase on a daily basis. And just for calibration, uh, I checked this number with Ian just before we started. The estimates for what the global average is, <clears throat> excuse me, vary widely. But the numbers that are out there are about five to nine metric tons of CO2 per person per year, which means in the U.S. we're three to four times, uh, our carbon footprint is three to four times that of the average global citizen. It's probably not that striking to the people in this room. If you're here, you probably are well aware that our carbon footprint is quite high. Uh, but if we talk about sustainability and we talk about things that Americans can do to reduce our carbon footprint, um, this sort of really drives the message home. We've got a long way to go uh, to even be comparable to the global average. So what I focus on at the lab is something called life cycle assessment. Um, I can kind of see you. The lights are really bright. How many of you have heard of this? Um, okay, that, that, that's a fair amount. About 10 years ago, if I would have asked that, I probably would have only gotten a couple of hands. Um, so, and there's a reason for that, and part of it has to do with this new attention on, on carbon emissions and carbon footprinting. So life cycle assessment is a scientific methodology that's, that's uh, been practiced now for several decades. Um, and basically, the concept is very simple. If we think of the environmental impacts of a product, uh, let's say this bottle of water. It's a good example. Um, the impacts of this bottle of water um, can only truly be measured from a life cycle perspective. So, um, you know, we've got water in this bottle, which had to be purified. That water had to come from somewhere. We've got a plastic bottle, which had to be manufactured. And so the life cycle assessment methodology gives us a way to organize all of the various life cycle stages of a product and to account for the various inputs of raw materials and energy that are required across the life cycle and the various outputs of different pollutants, air emissions, water emissions, carbon emissions. So if we think of this water bottle and we follow the life cycle uh, chain here, uh, the raw materials for this bottle had to be extracted, uh, probably came from natural gas, extracted from the ground, 
turned into resin. Um, that resin was shipped to a manufacturing facility, which molded the bottle, filled it with water. We used it if we refrigerated it. There's some carbon emissions associated with that. And then what happens to it at the end of its life? So when we talk about the carbon footprint, we're really talking about this life cycle footprint. And we use this extensively to come up with these carbon footprint estimates that I'll tell you a little bit more about. But one thing I do want to stress is um, we try to look at all environmental impacts. So the struggle for me tonight is when we talk about reducing carbon, um, as someone who practices life cycle assessment, I'm also concerned with uh, what's the water footprint? What's the toxic emissions footprint? What's the energy footprint uh, of a product? And if we're lucky, we can reduce all impacts uh, while we're reducing carbon. But there are some trade-offs. Uh, it's not always about carbon. So how do we do these studies? Well, I've put up here a very simple example. Uh, well, at least it's a simple product example, a whiteboard marker. And there's a great website. You know, I, I'm really sorry about this, but the last I just checked this, and the website was down. I hope it's still around, because I was going to recommend it as a really helpful, user-friendly introduction to LCA, which steps you through this example of a whiteboard marker. So the title up here is The Simple Can Be Complex. And you can see right away, if we look at this whiteboard market, marker, very simple product. Seems like there are only a few different components that would be in it. Um, and if we break that down into sort of a life cycle approach, you know, we purchased the whiteboard marker. Uh, before we purchase it, it had to be assembled somewhere. Uh, the materials that went into the assembly process had to come from somewhere. Uh, those raw materials had to be extracted from the uh, natural environment and so on down the line. All of these processes require energy inputs, which, has just, which, which have their own life cycle system. Uh, there's transportation involved. And so when we start looking at products from a life cycle perspective, it quickly can get very complex. And the way we conduct one of these studies um, uh, is for each one of these processes. So here I've got extraction of oil. We see extraction of oil up here. Uh, we gather data. So per unit of output, let's say it's a gallon of oil that's extracted from the earth. How much energy was used? What was the form of energy? Uh, what sort of other emissions occurred uh, in addition to energy-related emissions? Carbon dioxide, carbon monoxide, NOx. And so we can do this for every process in the life cycle of a product. And uh, when we make our way through the process diagram, we can come up with a grand total, which will give us a carbon footprint, a water footprint, uh, a hazardous emissions footprint. The key point here is that these can be very complex studies. And so when you see these estimates of carbon footprints, or life cycle footprints, just know that it takes a lot of data, it takes a lot of time, and generally a lot of resources to come up with these estimates. And often we cut corners, uh, so these are generally very rough uh, approximations at best, even for simple products. Now, if we look at something a bit more complex, this is one floor of a commercial building, and just the construction practices associated with that floor. So you can see that as we start getting to more and more complex products, uh, a commercial building, for example, hundreds of different materials, thousands of different operations, um, use phase considerations, end-of-life considerations. It can become a very data-intensive exercise to perform these studies. Uh, so again, the key here is always take these results with a grain of salt. I'm going I'm to present a few examples of some studies that have been out there that are sort of fun, uh, that will sort of illustrate why the, this sort of framework is very important, what the pitfalls can be, and how we can even have uh, studies that, uh, well, uh, amount to uh, you know, misuse or uh, misrepresentation of, of science uh, in their results, just given the complexity of the process. So I thought now that I'd talk about some examples. Um, I could show you some graphs. I could step you through an analysis. But it's a lot more fun to talk about things that, that we care about and the decisions that we need to make on a day-to-day -day basis. So 
I've got three case studies uh, that I'll quickly tell you stories on. Uh, the first is this classic question of life cycle assessment, paper versus plastic. You go to the grocery store, um, they'll ask you, paper versus plastic, which should we choose? Food miles, this idea of buying locally. Um, and then there's this study of the Hummer versus the Prius, which, which some of you may have heard of. If you haven't, it's sort of a fun story I'll tell you about. But all of these examples uh, have used life cycle assessment to one degree or another. And life cycle assessment has provided some really interesting insights as to which of these options is preferable. So I'll start with this example here, paper versus plastic. So let me take a quick informal poll. Um, for, let's, let's say we want to have, choose the, the paper bag, the, the bag, sorry, I didn't, I didn't just portray the results there. Um, uh, the bag with the lowest carbon footprint, which would it be? How many of you think it's plastic? And how many of you think it's paper? Wow. And um, anyone want to offer a reason? You don't have to. For why you think paper is the, the lowest carbon option. Yeah, here, I can see you. So. I think it's the lowest? Yeah. Actually, I don't think so. Oh, you don't think so? Okay. Okay. <laughs> anyone else who, who thinks paper bags have the lowest footprint? Yeah. Sure. That's a very good point. So plastic does come from fossil fuels, either natural gas or oil, and fossil fuels often have a very large uh, impact on the carbon footprint of products. Uh, yeah, please go ahead. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, so we're talking just about the, the carbon footprint or the environmental footprint, and it does include the recycling stage. So we're looking at the full life cycle. So cradle to grave, uh, raw materials to end of life are these two products. Yeah, yeah. So it really depends on, on what the situation is. So there's an interesting story uh, that I can sort of use to, to talk about these two options. Uh, but first let me tell you, um, most of the studies show that a single plastic bag has a lower environmental footprint for air emissions, for carbon emissions, than a paper bag. Uh, and the reason is for that that... Uh, even though they're based on a fossil fuel resource, they're very lightweight. Uh, if you think about getting the bags to the store, for the same number of plastic bags, let's say it'll take one truck to deliver X amount of plastic bags, we need seven trucks to deliver the same amount of paper bags, just because they take up a lot more space in a truck. So that's one consideration. Um, so it's sort of counterintuitive, right? I mean, we think of paper as uh, biodegradable, natural, renewable. All those things are true. If we talk about carbon, Several studies have shown that it's the plastic bag. Um, now, let me, let me tell you an interesting story about uh, a decision that was made. Um, so we've all heard of plastic bag bans. So there's a story that um, uh, a lot of us know in the life cycle community about uh, Ireland. In 2002, they implemented a, a plastic bag tax at their grocery stores. And I think currently it's like 33 cents a plastic bag. So uh, what happened was um, there was a steep decline in the number of plastic bags that were taken home by consumers. Um, uh, some, some claim that there was a rise in paper bags. And uh, the interesting thing is that over time, some of the opponents to this ban have shown that the net imports or net consumption of plastic in Ireland actually increased. Does anyone know why that, why that would be? Well, yeah, it actually increased, yeah. So I've seen some statistics that show that uh, the amount of garbage can liners increased, the amount of diaper bags increased, and the amount of, I think, uh, other bags increased. Because a lot of people reuse their, their plastic bags 
when they bring them home. You'll take your groceries home, you'll use it for your garbage can, li garbage can liner, and so actually that plastic bag is providing more than one service in its life. So this is an example of the, the sort of issue that life cycle assessment tries to get at before a policy is made. Now, the policy has been very effective at reducing, uh, I think, litter from plastic bags. But in terms of reducing the total amount of plastic that are, going in, that are being consumed by uh, consumers in Ireland, uh, there are a lot of data that show that maybe uh, they haven't had any plastic reductions, uh, but rather people are buying more plastic bags. Now, obviously, the best solution to the whole problem is to just use re reusable plastic reusable bags, not plastic bags or paper bags, but bags that you can use continuously. Um, and from a life cycle perspective, I have to tell you that if you buy it, you got to use it. It's not good just to have it in your trunk or in your closet. Um, because it, you know, if you're going to use it once, it's actually better to use paper or plastic uh, than a reusable bag. Um, so that's an interesting story about paper versus plastic. And you know, despite this being an age-old debate in LCA, it's still an open question. Um, so let's get to this one about food miles, because this is very interesting, especially in the East Bay where we have a big movement to buy food locally. Um, so how many of you think that buying locally leads to uh, lower carbon food? Buying local, buying local locally sourced foods, yeah. Buying yeah. Buying, buying local. Define. Define local. Well, um, it depends. I guess local is in the eye of the beholder. It could be within the East Bay. It could be California. Probably is in Australia. <laughs> you can probably see where I'm going with this. Um, so um, there are many reasons to buy local. And those of you that had your hands up, you're, you're not completely wrong. <laughs> um, you're right sometimes. Sometimes you're not right, uh, the data show. So this is very interesting, and it's counterintuitive. Um, so it just seems that if we buy something that's local, it has a shorter distance uh, across which it's shipped, and it should have a lower carbon footprint. Um, this was an idea that gained a lot of traction a few years ago, but there have been several studies that have sort of debunked this as a general rule. Uh, and there was one interesting study that was published in the UK, which looked at the purchase of lamb. So they compared buying lamb locally, uh, you know, sort of uh, grown and fed and slaughtered in the UK, versus lamb that was shipped in from New Zealand pretty far away, like 11,000 miles. And they found that it was actually four times less energy intensive to get the lamb from New Zealand than it was to get it locally in the UK. And the big reason for that was if we think about the system that supplies food, we've got a lot of processes from you know, planting grain for food to feeding animals to dealing with their manure to giving them water to slaughtering them. Uh, there's a lot of impact that goes into just getting the food into its final form before it's shipped. And my, re my, my colleagues at Carnegie Mellon who have studied this issue um, have showed that in general for the U.S., if we take the 100% of your food's impact, only about 10% of it has to do with that final leg of shipping, meaning you know, where it's sourced to where you purchase it. The other 90%, roughly, has to do with the impacts of manufacturing the food itself. So you can quickly envision a scenario where you're buying something that's local, that has maybe inefficient production, versus something that comes from farther away that has more efficient production. And quickly, you can see that you can have a lower carbon footprint from buying food that comes uh, from a long way off. Part of this also has to do with the fact that it's much more energy efficient to ship by rail um, and to ship by ocean-going vessel or, or domestic water vessel than it is to go by diesel truck. You can ship something for about uh, 10 to, to anywhere up to, from 10 to 30 times the distance in, on rail or in a ship um, for the same impact as you get um, from shipping it um, uh, in a truck, if that made sense, what I just said. Okay, so the last example I want to throw out is this Hummer versus Prius example. 
So have any of you heard this sort of urban legend that a Hummer is more environmentally, more environmentally friendly than a Prius over its life cycle? Yeah, so not many of you have heard this. I'm surprised by that. Um, it was a big story a few years ago. There was a study that was published that took a life cycle approach that compared a bunch of different SUVs, including some Hummers, to um, some hybrids, including the Prius. And what got the most press was this claim that a Hummer H1, I believe, uh, had a lower life cycle energy impact per mile driven than a Prius. And this was surprising to a lot of people, and uh, especially those of us in the LCA community who wondered how that could be. Well, this is an example of where a study was conducted that took a very thorough approach. But if you remember from those process diagrams I showed you, it takes a lot of data. It takes a lot of assumptions to conduct one of these studies. And when people dug into the assumptions, they found that there were some that either intentionally or unintentionally weren't the best assumptions. And I'll give you one a big example. So the lifetime assumption for the, hummus in, for the Hummer in that study, uh, I'm thinking I'm still my mind's on food miles here, hummus, uh, <laughs> was something like 375,000 miles. So this Hummer would be driven for 375,000 miles. The Prius was only assigned, I think, 106,000 miles. So right off the bat, the study assumed that a Hummer would last a lot longer, three times as long as a Prius. And so you can picture that if we have a certain amount of energy for manufacturing it, using it, disposing of it, and you divide that by 375,000 versus 106,000, you may find that this is the lower energy intensity option. So that's an example of how LCA has ostensibly been used to sort of weigh in on the environmental friendliness of a product. In this case, the carbon footprint of transportation, where when we dug into the data and we dug into the methods, there were some assumptions like the lifetime of the vehicle uh, that were really strange and led to sort of um, strange results. Uh, and it's since been debunked. Uh, there was a great uh, piece put out by Peter Gleick of the Pacific Institute, who also uh, dabbles in LCA, uh, in addition to the many other things he focuses on, uh, that sort of point by point showed how the study was flawed and uh, how most of the scientific community really didn't buy into it after all of the assumptions were laid there. So the message is, you're probably going to see a lot more of these numbers about carbon footprints of products. Product X is better than product Y. It's better to do this than it is to do that. Just know that the studies that are behind those numbers aren't trivial, and that sometimes there are a lot of estimates, a lot of assumptions, and you really need to wear your skeptic's hat when you see those. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a very good point. So uh, what you're getting at, I think, is um, the, so, so the, the car, a lot of the carbon dioxide emissions associated with paper are of, they're biogenic in nature, meaning that they've come from plant matter, which at some point took carbon out of the air, and as long as we plant another tree, it's sort of a closed cycle. And those CO2 emissions are sort of effectively sequestered, and we don't have that for fossil fuel options. I'd have to dig into the studies um, that, you know, to see what the assumptions were for that. But clearly, that's a benefit to the, to the paper product, that it's from a biogenic resource and that it can sequester carbon over time if the system is managed properly. Okay. So if I, if I stay back here, I can't see you. So I'll just do that so you don't feel offended. Uh, and I'm almost done. So what, what can you do? So um, I tried to put down some, some strategies that I'm calling robust. This means that Multiple studies uh, with different assumptions have sort of reached the same general conclusion that there are big differences. If we do action X, it should lead to carbon reductions. So let's quickly talk about food. Um, one thing to know is that red meat and dairy, uh, although a lot of us enjoy them, they're very carbon intensive. Um, they're some of the most carbon intensive food choices we can make. 
So in that same study from Carnegie Mellon where I showed you the pie chart, they found that um, for the average U.S. consumer, if you replaced one day's worth of calories um, from meat and dairy to almost anything else, you would save uh, carbon dioxide emissions um, equivalent to buying all of your stuff locally that you could. So they showed that this idea of food miles, buying locally, if you just get rid of some red meat and some dairy in your diet, preferably you know, all of it if you can, you'll, do a lot more, you'll have a lot more benefit than, than buying locally, at least with respect to carbon. Um, there are a lot of benefits to buying locally, including you know, getting local food that's uh, you know, grown within season, supporting local farmers. We're just talking about carbon here. But that's sort of a fail-safe a, a, a fail strategy. Um, reducing food waste. Don't buy more than you need. It's sort of going back to our, our ancestors, right? Uh, we don't waste things. And the food system can be very resource-intensive. So uh, food waste is something you should try to avoid. So what about buying locally? I think I just sort of covered that. And I'm happy to talk more about that issue. I know it's sort of a hot-button one um, when we come to the panel session for questions. Organics. Organics in general, can be quite good from a carbon perspective. Um, although the trade-off is, if we don't get organic, um, there are methods out there, minimizing fertilizer, minimizing irrigation, responsible land management, that can make conventional farming very attractive from a carbon perspective, too. So in general, organic is good, and it can't hurt from a health perspective, and clearly from a, a societal uh, you know, toxics perspective to buy organic. Uh, the jury's still out on whether or not it's going to save carbon for every organic choice that you have. I'm going to leave this note to, to Ian and, and Cindy. Um, energy efficiency and conservation. Remember from that pie chart, uh, you know, 56% or so of our footprint comes from home energy use and transportation. Here, energy efficiency and conservation are, are utterly key. The waste management hierarchy. Reduce, reuse, recycling. We've all, we've all heard of this. Um, it pretty much holds for carbon as well. The less we buy, the less stuff has to be manufactured. The more we reuse it, the less stuff we have to buy. And recycling almost always saves energy and carbon compared to uh, making resources, uh, making products from virgin resources. So follow this and you should be in good shape. Product longevity. This has to do with just using the stuff we have um, until its technical life runs out. So we throw a lot of things away before we need to for reasons of fashion, for reasons of uh, you know, um, uh, functionality, aesthetics, that sort of thing. Um, most of us, or many of us, will get a new cell phone every year, a new computer every two, three years. A lot of those devices have a lot of useful life left in them. So this is another way that we can get the most out of the products we buy. The big exception is if there's a product that is very much more energy efficient than its predecessor, and it doesn't take a lot of energy to manufacture, it's often better to upgrade. So if you have an old hot water heater, 20 years old, uses a lot of energy, there's a much more efficient option available today, it's better to buy that than to hold on to your old water heater just because it works. So if you think about durable goods, um, computer equipment, uh, that sort of thing, it's better to try to use it for as long as you can. The last is maybe something we can talk about more in the panel Q&A, but it just gets at this idea of living simply, or more simply than we are, uh, consuming less stuff, being a little bit happier with less, not buying things that we're not going to use, not needing to get new clothes every year or new computers every year. I know that's a tough sell for a teenager. Um, we've all been there before. Uh, but there's really no way around this. If we look out to the future and we want to get our carbon footprint down closer to the global average, um, we're going to have to start reducing consumption. So I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Eric. So now Cindy will join us and, uh, and help us get smart about buildings.
I'm going to talk to you about, um, in particular, how to lower your carbon impact and really your energy from your work environment. And I'm going to talk to you both as a, a tenant, a, a user of a commercial building, but potentially also as an owner of a building. So first, the big picture. Um, you may have seen this chart before, but buildings are on a much higher trajectory of increased uh, carbon um, output compared to other types of transportation and industry in the U.S. in general. Um, this chart only goes up to the year 2000, so I imagine this may have leveled off a little bit recently, but um, the truth of the matter is that it is a problem and it is on, the, on a steep increase. Um, the, the pie chart on the right shows for the building, buildings in general use just a little bit less than 40% of the U.S.'s annual energy use. Of that, it's about a 50-50 split between residential and commercial energy use. Um, Ian will talk a little bit about the residential side. I'll talk about the commercial side. Um, hopefully you can see this a little bit, but it does indicate here that the breakout of what uses energy in commercial buildings is pretty diverse. Um, the biggest use overall is in lighting, followed by heating, cooling, water heating, ventilation, office equipment, refrigeration, computers, cooking, and a hodgepodge of other, and that could include elevators, escalators, um, a whole host of other things. Um, I will be talking tonight about something called plug loads, and that is a catch-all phrase that encompasses a lot of devices that fundamentally are plugged into your outlet in your work environment. Those could be computers, they could be photocopiers, refrigerators, uh, water coolers, a whole host of things. Um, first, a note about LEED. Um, you may have heard of this system from the U.S. Green Building Council. It's a process by which you can certify whether your building is green at several different plateaus of certification. Um, a couple things about it. One is that it does not address plug load equipment energy use um, or electrical system losses. So those are losses in your transformers, your electrical panels, etc. Um, and it isn't a catch-all for all green energy-saving strategies in commercial buildings. And it actually is not a guarantee of low energy performance. Um, there's been a significant study out in the last while that looked at the actual energy performance of lead buildings compared to how they predicted they would perform and found that in some cases the buildings did better, but in about half of the cases they did worse. So um, unfortunately, I think some of this is because it does not address plug load equipment, other types of system losses, and so forth. Um, there is work being done to improve on this, but just to let you know that at the moment, it's not a guarantee of, of good energy performance. Um, but I do believe this is a personal anecdote that is an effective tool to identify some green strategies in, in commercial buildings. And uh, in general, I am thankful for the fact that it's brought a lot of these issues to the forefront in the marketplace and people are beginning to see a, a real value to them. So what can we do? This is a bit of a hierarchy um, in terms of what you can do as a tenant or as a building owner and how to lower your energy use in a commercial building. So the first thing you want to do is lower the loads. And by that I mean you want to lower the energy use and the heat produced by devices that then has an impact on other systems like your air conditioning system. Um, so th those are primarily plug load equipment and lighting. <clears throat> You also want to adopt good comfort and conditioning behaviors, and I'll talk a bit about this, using whatever passive and active sources you have at your disposal to um, increase your comfort and also use your built environment in a sensible way that is low energy. Um, 
you should then, getting more, more aggressive about how to lower your energy use, consider benchmarking your building. That is actually measuring how much energy it uses. And then furthering that, you can go and address the active building systems by doing retrofits, um, be it on the individual equipment piece of, piece of equipment level or actually going to the equipment system level um, and doing improvements on, on that end. And I'll talk about some of the things I list here a little bit in a few more slides. Um, the last two steps are very important. You want to make energy use visible to the people that are in the space, and you want to educate occupants on the good behavior in terms of using your built environment and get feedback. So ultimately, we want to have comfortable environments that allow us to be productive as occupants, but we also want to have very low energy buildings. So there has to be a feedback in terms of educating people on how to properly use a building system and allowing people to have the opportunity to be engaged with those systems in order to be successful. So this is a pie chart. Um, this is not a typical pie chart, I should say. A typical building might have, um, in terms of space heating, space cooling, plug loads, and lights, you know, it might be a 25% share each, for each of those. This is a pie chart, though, for a building that was it's new construction, and it was designed to be extremely low energy. It was designed to be a net zero building, which I think is a good aspiration for all of us in terms of how to push our buildings to use lower energy. And the point I wanted to make with this is that you know, as a building designer, they have a lot of control over the, the building walls, the glazing, the shading of the building. <clears throat> and they have a lot of control over how to design the space conditioning systems, the heating system, the, the cooling system, and the lighting system. But they don't have any control at all over what happens with when the tenants move in on day one and they bring in all of their devices, all of their computers, all their photocopiers, their water coolers. And that's this giant piece called plug loads. So you can see it's nearly a 50% or close to 45% piece of the pie. And the point I want to make here is that this is a huge opportunity for you as an occupant and a tenant to engage and actually make a good point at reducing your energy use. So what can you do to lower your plug load energy use? Um, one good strategy is to first centralize your purchasing of all office equipment so that you have a method to um, consistently specify low energy equipment. Um, energy Star appliances are a good choice. Um, and this applies only to some types of appliances, though. Refrigerators, photocopiers, and so on. And uh, when you go on the Energy Star website, you have more than one choice for these items. And you should consider doing some research to figure out what's the best low-energy product that's available that meets my needs, not just one that fits on the list. Um, some devices, though, are not ENERGY STAR rated. Um, telecom equipment, for, for example, some types of AV equipment, and you might have to do some more at work to sort of look at what's available and determine what uses less energy. Um, another thing you should consider when you look at things like kitchen equipment, water coolers and coffee makers, with coffee makers in particular, often they're left on all day heating up old coffee. One, instead of just specifying more efficient equipment, you could also consider, what if I just made coffee in the, in the morning, filled up a thermos, and let it sit there and turned off your coffee maker? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, similarly, with water coolers, you should challenge yourself and think, do I really need to have 50-degree water all day long in my office? And some of these water coolers also have a heating um, option available on them too. And those are sitting there at the ready waiting to provide hot and cold water all day long, all weekend long, regardless of there's, if there's somebody there to use it. So you might consider, is, is room temperature water okay? Um, is tap water okay? 
And we happen to have some pretty good quality water in the Bay Area, so it, from my perspective, that's, that's a pretty valid choice. Um, so in terms of controls, there are a lot of products on the market now that allow you to um, be more sensible with how these devices actually are used. One thing that, to note is that when they're powered down completely, they're often not completely off. Um, a lot of devices these days are sort of in a semi-sleep mode when you turn them off and are kind of at the ready to, to awaken as soon as you push the power button. Um, you could buy a cheap watt meter and figure out how much that draw is on a continual basis, but it's a real problem. Um, so there are some, some strategies you can do to uh, improve that. One is, you know, it's on the more extreme end, but you can use on your electrical system, you can change out and have programmable circuit breakers. So you can program to only provide power to certain circuits when you know the building is occupied. Um, other things you could do is you could look at using these master controlled power strips. On one side of the power strip, you have outlets that are the master controlled device, and on the other side are sort of the slave devices. In a normal mode, um, the power is completely off to the slave devices. And only when you turn the power on to one of the master devices will the, you get power activated to the rest. I have one of these um, at home plugged into my entertainment system. When I turn on the TV, then, you know, whatever the other devices that are plugged into it, my speakers, for example, if I had them, um, would get turned on as well. Um, also consider using standby modes on equipment. And when you do have a choice, um, a good control strategy is to have things manually turned on but automatically turned off. Um, and this way you don't tend to leave something on in per perpetuity um, using energy um, unwanted. Computers in particular, there's a lot of choices. You can use uh, laptops instead of desktops. They actually use a lot less energy. Um, LCD monitors are becoming a lot more common, and those are a great choice over the old uh, monitors. They're actually a lot less energy using. Um, the next item is a particular kind of networked computer system called a thin client. Um, instead of each desk having its own hard drive, you share a networked hard drive. Um, so you're sort of like making good use of the diversity of how you're computing with your office mates, and you're sort of downsizing your hardware and making good use of one piece of equipment rather than many of them. Um, there are some limitations to that kind of approach, but in many cases I think it probably would be adequate. Um, they do have Energy Star appliances for computers, but there's also the 80 Plus products, which has a three-tier system for energy efficient products. So you can choose to pick the most efficient of that tier rather than just the lowest. Um, and again, having the occupancy controlled power strips. And uh, the last item here is power management software. Um, Energy Star products historically haven't mandated uh, good sleep modes for most uh, office equipment, for most computer, um, computer equipment. So you can buy networked power management software that controls and programs a network worth of computers within your office to have good sleep modes. Um, on the lighting side of things, uh, you want to think about having dimmable lighting instead of just completely on-off. Look at low wattage bulbs, CFLs are a good choice, LEDs, although expensive, are becoming a, a good choice as well. Um, controls are really a good option here. Looking at daylighting, control, only put on as many lights as you need to compared to how daylight the space is. Um, maybe instead of having two circuits of light on in an office, you only really need one on for part of the day. Um, having occupancy controls on lighting is also a really good idea, especially in restrooms and break rooms where you don't always have people there. 
And task lighting is a really great choice. Um, if you have an office area where, you know, eight people out of ten are, are gone on a, in a meeting or something, the remaining two can use task lighting in general to do their work rather than having an entire area of the office being lit. Um, <clears throat> just wanted to show an example as well of what a good daylight environment looks like. This is the New York Times office building. Um, it happens to have a lot of glazing on the, on the facade. Uh, you can see the first couple sets of lights are turned off. They're controlled by daylight sensors. And these are dimmable lights. As you get into the space, you can see the lights gradually get brighter, reacting to how much daylight is getting into the space. So the next uh, slide is really about how you can best and effectively make use of your building envelope as an occupant. Um, you have a choice to operate manual shades, and you also have a choice to operate operable windows. Um, just being knowledgeable about the fact that operable windows can improve your comfort. Rather than reaching for the thermostat, if you open a window and allow for additional air movement, that might be enough. Um, operable windows could also be a benefit to help pre-cool a building when it's, you know it's going to be a warm day outside. Um, but you also want to be aware that op open windows aren't great when you know the air conditioning is on or the heating system wants to kick on. So just generating that level of awareness is really critical. And it goes back to what I mentioned before about educating your coworkers, educating the tenants about how to accurately or well use your building. Um, also look at setting back your thermostat and don't use electric spray seeders. That's, that's a huge amount of energy that those devices use. It's actually, you know, if, if you walk around and see those littered throughout your office space, number one thing you should do is find a way to get rid of those. Um, so that leads me to the next slide is find ways to be comfortable. Educate yourself about how to be in your environment, not necessarily without reaching for means that are highly energy intensive to do it. Um, dressing seasonally is one of those things. I think a lot of people get this, but in some climates there is a cultural expectation of, I want to wear my shorts nine months of the year. Um, it, it just doesn't cut it, really. Somewhat logical things, when you think about them, if you're hot, don't sit in direct sunlight. Use your shades um, to cut off the direct path of the sunlight. Um, increasing air movement, particularly around the head, really does help quite a bit. Um, so task fans could be a good choice in some cases. Um, drinking a cool beverage. And similarly on the, on the warming side, there's a corollary. And in one particular case, um, keeping your feet warm actually helps quite a bit too. Just knowing that that's a choice is a good thing. Um, and if you're in a tall space, installing a ceiling fan to draw the warm air from up high down to where people are. So the next step beyond those items and just how do you live in, in, your off, in your office environment would be if you want to get more engaged with the building, you really need to sort of look at your energy use and figure out where you can make the biggest impact. And if you're a tenant, this is where you should think about challenging your landlord to meter your energy use. I know in many cases, leases, don't, leases bury the energy rate for the, uh, for the tenant or they're just included in the lease rate. Well, in order to sort of take the next step, you really have to be educated about where those opportunities are. So challenging your landlord to meter your energy use is, is the next step. Um, and there, are, there is a recent study that shows just by making, making that energy use visible to the tenants has a real effect of just by knowing that your energy use is high or not really has an effect at lowering your energy use. Um, some people call this the Prius effect. This is where you realize that 
when you're driving a Prius and you can see your miles per gallon right up there, you recognize that your behavior really matters in terms of how you can affect your miles per gallon. And so people do try and, like, you know, do their best to lower their mileage. Um, or raise their mileage, rather. So, uh, and lower energy buildings are good business. So this is the first step towards improving the value of the building and improving the value of, of the business in terms of saying we're a green build, building, we really do get that energy matters. So the next thing beyond actually measuring energy use, you need to be able to compare it with something in order to be able to say, is this doing well or not? Um, at the lab, we've developed a tool called Energy IQ, and the website's up here. Um, this is particularly for commercial buildings. It's what's called a benchmarking tool. So it looks at measured energy use. So it could just be your utility bill. It could be just at the whole building level, or it could be at the tenant level. And it compares that energy use to a couple of databases worth of real building energy use data that's collected either nationally or in California. Um, at the national level, level, it's the CBEX Energy Survey, which is Commercial Building Energy Consumption Survey. And at, in California, it's called SUS, the California Energy Utilization Survey. Um, the nice thing about the SUS data is that it's not just at the whole building level. They really went the next step, and they disaggregated it for all the different subsystems. So you can look at lighting energy use, heating, cooling, plug loads, etc. Um, and future versions of the tool will actually help you to, once you plug in your data for your building, it'll help you to say, you know what, here's a laundry list of things we think you could do to really improve your commercial building energy use. So this is just a quick snapshot of the tool itself. Um, you have to input some metrics about the building, where it's at, the vintage of construction. Um, and you have a lot of choices about different types of end uses you can look at. This is just a snapshot for one example I input. Um, and it shows of the buildings that they have data for, where you're building that you input lands. And I guess the one other point, I this can be a really valuable tool for figuring out where are my opportunities to help reduce my energy in my commercial building. But I do want to point out that this is a database of existing buildings, and existing buildings inherently are not very energy efficient. So if anything, you want to be way over in the, the first percentile of this chart, because overall we really need to shift the paradigm much further down into lower energy use commercial buildings. But it is a very valuable and valid tool for helping to figure out where those opportunities are. So once you've figured out, you know, my lighting energy use is really off the charts, what can I do? Um, there's a number of steps that you could take. Uh, make use of existing utility programs and incentives. PG&E happens to have a good portfolio of products for small building, uh, commercial building owners as well as large ones. Um, consider do improving the envelope. Exterior shading could be a really good choice, uh, particularly if you're on the borderline of trying to install air conditioning. It might just mean that if you put some good southern exposure or western exposure shading, you might be able to get away without it. Um, <clears throat> retune your building controls. This has been shown in a number of studies to really have a big benefit and a very quick cost payback. What this means is essentially you hire a professional to come in and look at how your building is performing and make sure that all of its sequences of operation are working the way they should be. Um, if you are going to replace equipment in a one-to-one, -one, you want to increase the equipment efficiency. Uh, where you can, install controls where they're appropriate. Um, timers on fans is a simple thing. Um, this item of 100% economizer controls, what that is is it's an outside air method of cooling your building. We happen to live in a really moderate climate, which most of the time the outside air is cool enough that we could cool our building with it. So it's 
it has become a mandatory practice in new construction um, for some types of construction, but in a lot of existing buildings, it doesn't exist or it doesn't work properly. So that can be a really good thing to pay attention to and uh, make sure it's implemented correctly. Um, and going further and further down the food chain of how to get more aggressive and more aggressive energy savings with your building, at some point you want to consider a really holistic building improvement. And by this I mean you don't want to just look at one piece of equipment and say I want to find the most efficient boiler that I can. You want to be thinking big picture. You want to be thinking about what is, you know, if I do a better job at my glazing selection, replace my windows, then maybe I can downsize my cooling system and maybe my cooling system, instead of being this very energy intensive air-based system, maybe I can put in something else. Maybe I can put in a radiant cooling panel. Maybe I can put in an evaporative cooler. Um, so you want, to, you want to kind of leapfrog a few steps in the energy efficiency um, platform. And the very last step would be using renewables. That always wants to be your last step. <clears throat> and if you're not a tenant and you're a building owner, you have no excuses. Last point, um, education is key, as I mentioned earlier. None of these systems are successful, and low energy really isn't achieved until you really have your building occupants understand how the building operates. And uh, you continue to have that kind of feedback mechanism because time and again we've seen buildings that have operable windows but people don't know when to open them, when to shut them, and there's an energy impact. So with that, I thank you. Thanks, Cindy. A uh, point for clarification, we were, uh, as in Berkeley Lab scientists, were involved in the planning of the New York Times building, is correct? Yes. Good. Ian, the stage is yours. All right. So you're probably wondering what all this stuff is up here. Well, I'm going to try and tell you, I hope, what the connection is between what's in here. Some of you might have guessed, as we're talking about carbon tonight, what the connection is to that. We've also got a golf club. I'll tell you why we're, what the connection is to golf. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll explain what this is in a little while. It's actually a LBL invention, believe it or not. And until I read the fine print on the bottle of water, I was going to say water is the last thing I want to connect with all these things. But I read this and it says it's from the French Alps, so it's travelled a little way. I'm sure that uh, Eric could tell us a little bit more about whether or not that was a smart decision or not. What do you think, Eric? Was it good to bring it from the French Alps or should we just have got it out of the tap? Uh, tap water is always bad. All right. Um, Sadly, when we talk about uh, things like carbon footprints and energy and all that sort of stuff, uh, there will be math, and this, this puts people off. And, and I promise that it will not be hard tonight, but there will be some math in a little while. Um, we need to think about more than one thing at a time, and, I, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm glad that Eric and Cindy had their great presentations tonight. They talk about lots and lots of things we have to think about. You can't just think about one thing. There isn't one answer that's going to fix our problems. And I think the, the last thing is the most important thing. Chances are, if you want to change your carbon footprint, and that's what you all came here tonight to learn, you're going to have to change how you live. So I wanted to take a little bit of a step back and think about where, where's the carbon coming from in California. I think we're mostly Californians here, either because we're staying here, living here, or we were born here. Either way, where does it all come from? Um, and if we rank where the carbon comes from in the state. There's a couple of 
big and important places. One is this place, the, the Chevron refinery. Um, I'm not saying this is bad. I'm just saying this is, makes a lot of carbon in the state, a lot of the CO2 emissions. But it's producing lots of very, very useful things, so we should keep it. Um, this over here, this is, this is uh, far, far away in Wyoming. And uh, in Northern California, we don't think about Wyoming too much. But in Southern California, they got a lot of their electricity from there. So the second biggest thing responsible for CO2 emissions for the state of California is actually in Wyoming, and it's that gigantic power plant. And the last, sorry, not the last, but the third thing is the fact that we make cement in California, and lots of it. And that is the third biggest source of CO2. So where, where, where are we in all of this? As individuals, we're not there. As a society, we can think about, think about things like uh, using the petroleum products from this grand refinery. We can think about the electricity we use from this power plant, and so on. Um, but I painted a little bit of a black picture there. We just saw some nasty industry, and everybody knows that's emitting lots of CO2. And we saw this giant, ugly coal power plant. We all know that's horrible. But there are good things happening in California. And California seems to have a progressive state. You probably all know that, otherwise you wouldn't be here tonight. We have this piece of legislation called AB32, which is a grandiose plan that says, by 2020, it'll look like 1990. Now, to me, that doesn't seem so grand. But in fact, if we had kept on doing what we were doing in 1990... By the time we got to 2020, we'd be using 25% more energy. We'd be emitting 25% more CO2. So it's a big ask. We're going to reduce our emissions by 25%. I think that's a lot. I think it's not simple. And luckily, the voters of this wonderful state uh, basically reapproved this legislation last week. So you can all congratulate yourselves. And, and Love him or hate him, he does some good things, he does some bad things. This fellow here, the Terminator, has been a very, very strong supporter of this legislation. And uh, to, to be fair, it's not just about carbon, it's about all sorts of other pollutants too. And we should all be very concerned about them. And he's, this, this young man here has been just fantastic in supporting this sort of legislation. So how much carbon are we talking about? Uh, Eric and I had a little bit of a laugh, laugh earlier because we had not colluded in any way, but somehow we had come up to, up to very, very close the same answer as in how much carbon are you using? And for a Californian, if we average it all out, it's something like 23,000 pounds a year. About half of that is transport, mostly driving cars, one imagines. Uh, that boils down about 63 pounds a day. And I wanted to illustrate what 63 pounds of CO2 look like. But it's hard to carry around CO2. There's some in the room with us tonight, and you, I, you can't see it. Right? And, and I thought, well, can we squash it down? There was no like, real way to bring that much CO2. I, a, I could have brought a gas cylinder, but it could have had anything in it you wouldn't know. So I thought, well, how much carbon is that? And that, of course, is what's in one of these bags. And the, if you took all the carbon in one of these bags and burnt it, in other words, you added the O2 to it in the CO2, the C being the carbon, you get about that 63 pounds. So you can think about every day, every Californian, it's like burning a bag of charcoal, more or less. Uh, and, um, nationally, that number is about 50% uh, higher, it's about 33,000 pounds. Now, don't get too smug, all right? Because remember, we live in this glorious place where in the winter it doesn't get cold. And I lived in Canada for 12 years, and I know what the winter's about up there. And we don't live in crazy places like Florida that no one should live in because it's a swamp. And if you don't air condition, it's totally miserable. I mean, people are living in mad places in this country, aren't they? Living in Wisconsin and Florida. Those people, they're having a hard time 
to use a little CO2. We're laughing. We've got it easy in California. We should be that much better. Okay? Uh, but of course, in the rest of the world, they're using a lot, lot less. Now, these people, they want to be here with the rest of the U.S. The rest of the U.S. scratch their heads and look at us crazy Californians with our AB32 legislation and say, well, you guys should be more like us. And, and, and we, we look at this and we say, oh, uh, you know, we're caring, caring Californians. We should be down here. Everyone's sort of pointing their fingers, trying to decide which, which pot they want to be in on this scale. But the bottom line is, eventually, we're all going to get down to some number like this because the things that we are burning to get up there are all going to go away one day. So... Um, if only thinking wasn't so hard. Uh, carbon's complicated, isn't it? Um, so, are you burning gas or electricity in your home? Does it matter? Well, um, this is where you've got to do the math a little bit. Um, if you're burning natural gas, that's one thing. You can imagine that's a direct production of CO2 in your home. But if you turn on the light switch, you're burning maybe coal in Wyoming. That's getting burned a long way away. You've got things like the inefficiency of the power plant. The transmission losses from the power plant to the switch in your home. The fact that the light bulb only takes 5% of the energy and turns it into light. The rest turns into heat. But if that's heat, that means you have to run the furnace less, which is offsetting the CO2 from the furnace burning. And also, when the furnace burners turn on and off, there's a little fan in there blowing the air around in most people's homes. So that was a little bit more, sorry, a little bit less. See, even I get confused. A little bit less electricity to burn the motor. So you can see that... Just making simple decisions about should I burn the gas or should I you know, turn on the lights, which you've got to think about all these subtle complexities that are involved. Um, the second bullet point, of course, I illustrated with a power plant. Where we, of course, we use many, many sources of electricity in California, and I'll get into more detail in a, in a, in a second or two here. Um, when do you use your electricity? Uh, we hear a lot about renewables and so on, and we all kind of understand that they happen sometimes and not at others. But even so, there's plenty of um, what you might call renewable electricity that is on all the time. And there's a debate about whether or not you can call nuclear renewable. Let's, let's not have that debate, but let's just say this nuclear power plant is on all the time generating a constant amount. Well, that's what's called in our baseline in California. Unfortunately, we don't all use the same amount of electricity all the time. There are big peaks, particularly on summertime afternoons for air conditioning, for example. And all the peaking stuff is coming from natural gas. So when you use your electricity matters, if you're using it in the middle of the night in the winter, you might be using nice renewables, but you can pretty much guarantee that when your air conditioner comes on in the summertime on a July afternoon, you're burning natural gas no matter what. Um, do we count transport? We don't have time today to talk about transport, and basically it gets flogged to death everywhere else. You're pretty much aware that if you burn less gasoline, it's better, right? Can we all agree on that? Okay, great, that's transport dealt with. Um, oh, and when you go on holiday, you should ride your bike to the beach in Alameda. You should not get on a jet plane and uh, fly to Hawaii, right? We're all, none of us are going to do that anymore. Good. And I've told my parents when they come from England, they've got to get a rowboat or a sailboat, one of those two. They cannot fly anymore. Um, and of course, th th this is what was touched on earlier by Eric, which is... Um, my goodness, it's very, very complicated to figure out how much energy is actually in a, in a bottle of water. It is very, very hard. And how do we count that? And I think right now we don't really have a good way of, of doing that, so we'll really have to think some more. All right, who has seen one of these before? Anybody? Nobody. Somebody. You all get them. 
uh, it's required. Uh, we've had this since 1998 in California. We've been doing this for a long, long time. We've been telling people exactly where their electricity comes from. And you can see it's broken down by the different sources, uh, what the particular utility is using, what the California average is. There's a lot of small print here which we can ignore. But the key thing here is if you're in Anaheim, which connects itself to that coal plant in Wyoming, which is why the amount of coal here is very large, you find out their electricity is dirty, dirty, dirty. And of course, we're not good Northern Californians. We know that about Southern Californians. But here I'm talking about the CO2. It takes about 1.6 pounds of CO2 for every kilowatt hour of electricity. Now, we don't live in Anaheim. Um, how many people here are PG&E customers? I imagine in Berkeley it's most of you. Well, PG&E is doing a lot, lot better. They're down at 0.6 pounds of CO2 per kilowatt hour. That's a big difference from dirty, dirty Anaheim, isn't it? And, and how did they get there? Well, they got there by having a bunch more renewables. They're using some hydropower. They're using mm, nuclear power. Yummy. Um, and, and, you know, this, this whole idea of it's okay, it's in Wyoming, there's a little bit of coal in the pg and but not very much. So that change from taking electricity made from coal in Wyoming, taking that out, because pg and isn't using very much of that, that changed this amount of... CO2 for every kilowatt hour that they're using quite a lot. Now I get to fly the flag a little bit. I, I live in Alameda. Anybody from, else from Alameda here? Good. Alameda's a lovely place to live. The sun always shines. We have palm trees. It's fantastic. We have a beach. It's lovely. So, nice, clean Alameda. We're down at 0.2, a third of what you crazy people in Berkeley are using. 0.2 pounds of CO2 per kilowatt. That's a tiny amount. How, how did Alameda get there? Well, primarily, a big thing is they get a lot of electricity from a big geothermal plant. Not in Alameda, I hasten to add. A little, little ways north. Um, and they do a lot with uh, biomass and waste. And I want you to note that uh, we talk a lot about wind and solar. Uh, but I think there are lots and lots of other avenues that are perhaps not getting the press they're perhaps not getting the funding to look at, whatever. There are other ways to be renewable other than just wind or solar, which are fine, fine things to do, but uh, there are other ways to do it. The city of Alameda has, has, has gone that way. They also have plenty of hydro. They, have, they actually are, have more coal than PG&E in their mix. But the, the, the bottom line is our electricity is really quite clean in Alameda. It would be great to get the whole state here, but to get the whole state there, we've got to do lots more things in terms of geothermal, um, burning our waste for fuel, um, sucking out the methane from our landfill to get it out of the biomass and, all, and all, that, all that sort of stuff. So I just wanted to make the point that, again, we've got to think and we've got to do the math because depending on the city you live in, all your choices may change. You know, deciding whether to burn gas or burn electricity depends on how much CO2 is in either of those. So just to recap, we had 1.6 pounds per, per kilowatt hour in dirty Southern California where nobody wants to go anyway. We had 0.6 pounds in the greatest city of all, Berkeley, and in sunny Alameda, the island paradise. We're down to 0.2. Um, just to get a bit of comparison, if you were just to burn the natural gas in your home, the number is around half a pound of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So in Alameda, we're below it. PG&E is a little bit higher than just burning natural gas. And down in Anaheim, they're in trouble. They're sinking fast. All right, so what can you actually do at home? So the basic premise here is that CO2 production is linked to the energy use in your home. What can you do? Some of these 
you, I'm, I'm sure you know about all these. I want to just put some numbers beside them to get, get some context here. If you replace a 100-watt light bulb with a 20-watt 3S EFL, you, you get something like 34 pounds of emission savings in a year. If you buy a nice, efficient washing machine, you save about 260 pounds. Quite a difference, but probably not surprising. How about a water heater? A good, efficient water heater can save about 120 pounds of CO2 in a year. And I want to make a note, um, it doesn't necessarily have to be tankless. There are some um, very, very nice uh, tank systems coming online. So now we actually have a lot more consumer choice than we used to if we want to have an efficient water heater. And lastly, the, the elephant in the room, if you will, is your furnace. Now we're at 1,000 pounds. So if you're looking to save energy at home, sure, replacing light bulbs is a great place to start. But if you want to do significant things, you've got to go after the big energy users in the home. And therefore, you need to know where the energy is going. And in a typical home in Berkeley, it's here. It's your heat. So if you take the old furnace, like my, I have this clunker from probably the late 60s. If I put in a really, really nice energy-efficient furnace, I could easily save that amount of CO2. So not only do we have to know uh, things like which city we're in to figure out what our emission rates are. The different things that we do can have huge, huge differences in the impact. I mean, clearly, if you want to have a significant impact, things like fixing your heating system is the way to go, if you were to do one thing. Oh, well, but you shouldn't do one thing. You should do them all, just to be sure. All right, here's an idea. I told, I told you at the beginning about maybe we have to change our lives a little bit, and of course we can change out our light bulbs, buy a new furnace, piece of cake. Um, I suspect that many of you, like me, have a, an office-style job. Not everybody does, but quite a few people do. And then there's the option of, what if I were to work at home? Because I, I said earlier that about half the energy uh, you know, for individuals in the state is transportation. It's things like uh, driving your car to or from work. Me, personally, I drive from Alameda to Berkeley. It's about 24 miles round trip. I get roughly 24 miles per gallon, which is convenient, because then I know I use a gallon. And in a gallon, there's about 19 pounds of CO2. So I drive to my office. I use my 19 pounds of CO2, right? So my home office, I just made up some numbers here. These are kind of close, but, you know, I get about a pound of CO2 generated by working at home, by having a computer on and a lamp and a printer's running, and I probably have my phone charging, and there's a nice monitor, and I'm listening to really, really loud music all the time. But you can, sort of, you can do some typical numbers, figure out about how much energy you use at home. So that's a, that's a big difference, right? I mean, it looks, it looks like, you know, working at home's a winner. Uh, but, but maybe not. This is almost getting to be a little bit, uh, little bit squishy, these numbers. But it depends on whether or not, if, if I lived in the Central Valley, where I was actually air conditioning my home all the time, I'd have to pay to have the air conditioner running because now I'm home. If I wasn't home, maybe I'd turn it off, unless I have uh, cats and dogs or small children, um, which I don't. So <laughs> let's, let's say I'm home and I run my air conditioner. Well, it costs you some electricity to run the air conditioner while you're home, so maybe we're going to generate another 2.5 to 5 pounds of CO2 because now we air condition because we're at home and not in our office. Similarly, if we live somewhere a little colder than here, like I said, we get sort of a free pass in the Bay Area because we don't do any heating or cooling or hardly any. But anyway, you might add something like 7 to 15 pounds of CO2 because you had to run the furnace because you were home and you're not going to allow the home to get cold. So it's, now it's getting to be not quite so clear as to whether or not working at home is going to be an advantage for CO2 unless you do the math. Now, in Berkeley, the numbers for heating and cooling are small. So probably you're going to be at the very lowest end of this for cooling. Probably you don't do it at all. And it for sure makes sense to work at home instead of going to your office. But then wait a minute. Um, what about the building you're working in? The building I work in is this huge thing. Me being there doesn't change its energy use in any measurable way because they're going to air condition my office whether I was there or not. Right? 
So in that case, because the energy still gets used whether I commute or not, unless I can get everybody in my building, including you guys, to stop commuting, it's going to be really, really hard to save that heating and cooling energy in the building that I work in. So then you have to figure out, um, okay, so now I heat and cool my office still as well as heating and cooling my home, and the math gets even more squishy as whether that's a good idea to work at home. Now, in Berkeley, I would say that you're still ahead if you work at home instead of going into your office. It's going to depend a little bit on the building that you, that you work in. I mean, if you go to an office where you have individual control, you can say, well, these three days a week, I'm not going to be there. I'll turn off the heating and cooling. You'll, you'll be even further ahead because you'll save the energy for space conditioning in the, in the building you're going to go work in. Otherwise, maybe not. But again, until you do the math, you won't know. Oh, public transit is interesting. Bicycling is the best. I like it. I like it very, very much. Um, because um, it, it's good in so many ways. It's, it's a good, healthy way to get around. Um, riding up to LBL is excruciating. I know some of you have probably done it. But, you know, we have, we have a shuttle bus at the lab where you can hook your bike on. And you can freewheel down. That is nice. So I'm, I think riding a bike is a fantastic idea. Um, many people don't do it for all sorts of reasons. In the summer, you do get kind of hot and sweaty. Then you have to think about, then I've got to shower when I get to my office, which is going to take energy too. Not so much energy, but anyway, biking is great. Public transport is, is also a great idea because so long as there's plenty of people on the bus or plenty of people on BART, of course, you're sharing the energy used to transport yourselves around. And these debates go back and forth. But in general, yes, public transport is going to be better than um, just driving around one person in one car. And of course, carpooling is a good idea for that too. Unfortunately, it, it, if, if everybody worked nine to five and you all lived with the people that you worked with, you could carpool efficiently. We just don't do that. And, and what, I, what I do like though, is I do like this idea of ride sharing to get across the bridge where people, um, I guess, originally it was about sharing the cost of the toll perhaps, but it does have this advantage of instead of one person in a car and I've got three or four, and that makes a big difference, of course, because you get to split that 19 pounds of CO2 between the four people. All those things are good, and we should definitely, definitely do them. Or um, ride a scooter or a motorcycle. Um, you can easily halve your CO2 production doing that. So there are transportation choices that you, that you can make that get away from one person, one car. And, of course, if you drove the Hummer and got a third of the mileage, you'd get to triple it. Uh, you'd have to do the math, I guess. Um, so water, 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 if only this wasn't from France, it was from California, it would have been a great, great segue, but there you go. Um, there's lots of energy in water, lots of it. Um, and mainly that's because, again, th this is like the, the climate problem. If, if you live where it's cold or you live where it's very, very humid, of course it takes lots of energy because you made a bad decision about where to live. Uh, in California, when California was developed, people made bad decisions about where to live. They said, well, it rains up there in the north, so let's not live there. Let's live in Southern California where it's sunny. And then we'll just pump the water around. And something like 5% of the energy in the state is used just to pump the water around. That's for all, all uses, by the way. So I'm including agricultural use in that. But, you know, frankly, there's people in, there's a city called Los Angeles, you've probably heard of. It's far, far away from the water it needs. You've all seen those big pipes going up over the hills, right? Well, they took some pretty tremendously large pumps to pump that water around. Now, if we take... Uh, the energy we use to heat water and process it and filter it and all that sort of stuff, we get up to 20% of California electricity is linked to water. That's a lot. And we don't often think about water in those terms. The, the stuff I talked about a couple of minutes ago about driving your car, less, taking public transport and cycling, and thinking about where to be in your office, 
we sort of have a feel that when we drive our car, we are going to emit CO2. We kind of have a feeling that if we turn on a light, we're going to use CO2. But when we um, open the tap, or we do things like, I don't know, grow grass. Even in Northern California, where we live here in the Bay Area, you can't grow grass if you don't water. Right? And every time you're watering, you're using energy. And so, this is the connection to the golf club. You're going to go from water to the golf club. Any golfers in here? Am I going to get lynched? Okay. Uh, if we're going to make lifestyle changes, I wanted to um, finish on this, this thought. Uh, because there's a lot of energy in the water, and we know how much energy there is. There's something like... It ranges in Northern California to Southern California. Northern California, we pay a lot less for pumping and treatment because we're not moving the water so far. It kind of makes sense. So you're down in Palm Springs, Southern California. It's really hot. You're in the desert. It's an insane place to have a golf course, but you've done it anyway. The water evaporates like mad, right? And so it takes about a million gallons a day for, a go- for every golf course in Palm Springs. And there's a lot of them, but about a million dollars a day. And it takes, uh, that's equivalent to three acre feet a day. What's, does anybody know what an acre is? Measure of area, a foot deep, to sort of give you a visualization of what a million gallons looks like. So if we plug in our kilowatt hours per acre foot that we know from our, our friends who study these things, we forgot what it takes about, you generate about 19,500 pounds of CO2 a day for your golf course in Palm Springs. That's close to each of your individual annual consumption numbers. So it's quite a lot, you'd think. Now, in Northern California, because we pay less for pumping and we're not in the desert, we're down at about 2,800 pounds of CO2 a day. But these are big, big numbers. Golfing is a problem. And if we could just eradicate golfing, <laughs> I think that, that would be, would be similar. But you're right. In the desert, it's a, it, it is an issue. It is a problem. To golf, in the, to golf in the desert is a luxury. And it's possibly a luxury that in the future we will do without. Which I know is sad for golfers. But if we're talking about changing lifestyles... There are some things that are easier to change than others, and possibly our hobbies. I, I, I'm picking on golf. I, I could have picked something else, but golf is the easy one. It's the easy target because it's so heavily linked to water use in the state, and there's a huge amount of energy involved. So that's why you've got to stop golfing right about now if you really care about carbon. So something that we might not want to stop doing is cooking. I think eating is good, and I think eating cooked food is good. I mean, there is, there is a movement, some of you probably heard about it, uh, of people who say we shouldn't cook. Just eat everything raw. And uh, you, have to sort of, you have to restrict your diet a bit, like probably eggs are out, you're thinking. Um, so I thought, well, I just did some quick back-of-the-envelope calculations that said, let's look at three different ways of cooking. We're going to have steak and potatoes. Yum, yum. So I'm, if I'm at home on my, on my gas stove and I use two burners, one, one I'm going to take a nice uh, pan and I'm going to fry my steak and I'm going to boil the potatoes in another pan, it's going to take about 20 minutes. And for a typical gas burner on a typical gas stove... You're going to generate about a third of a pound of CO2 to cook your dinner. That seems okay to me. If I do it on a gas barbecue, my propane barbecue, it's going to take about the same amount of time, but the gas barbecue uh, does not do things as efficiently. Uh, The burners are bigger. You're heating a bigger volume inside that space. Uh, Whether you cook with the lid open or closed or not can make a difference too, but I, I assume I closed it, so I cook in 20 minutes. And it took about three times the amount of CO2 to cook with propane on the gas grill. Finally, going full circle. Mm, it tastes good, doesn't it, on a mesquite barbecue? The problem is, that unlike my gas stove and unlike the propane barbecue, I can't turn this on and off very easily. 
I've just got to simply let it all burn out. That contributes a lot. It's all got to go. I've got to burn the whole bag of charcoal. And so instead of it being on for 20 minutes, I'm going to burn through. I, I said roughly two pounds of charcoal, which is not very much. Um, one of these bags, there's something, they're a little, they vary, but there's about 15 pounds in here. So, you know, I was thinking, what would I do if I was just cooking steak and potatoes for me? So I'm not talking about a big barbecue here. We're up at seven pounds of CO2 from that, from that barbecue. It's a very, very carbon dioxide intense way to prepare your food indeed. Now, you know, I've, answer, I've sort of told you why there's less efficient heat transfer going on here than there is up there. Um, it's hard to turn off the charcoal and only run it for 20 minutes and keep the rest of charcoal and use it the next day. Quite tricky. Um, also, um, there's different energy densities, you know, uh, in, in the different fuels that we use here. Um, so a lot of things are going on with cooking where you could significantly change the amount of CO2 you generate for the same meal. And I wanted to connect to this device. There's a picture there, but I'm so glad we had one to look at. This is, this is a little stove. Uh, this was developed at LBL by a wonderful, wonderful fellow called Ashok Gadgil and his team of researchers. And they developed this so that you could do essentially charcoal cooking, but do it in a very, very efficient way. The idea is that you can put your cook pot down inside here. All the heat comes around the cook pot, heats it up from all sides. This is massively, massively more efficient than the traditional open fire way of cooking that people were using in Darfur. And other people, not much smarter than me, have done the sums. They figure each one of these stoves that goes to Darfur uh, saves a little over 3,000 pounds of CO2 per year, which means that's a ton less firewood and charcoal that has to be collected in a part of the world where that can be very personally dangerous. It's not like me going um, and actually picking up a bag of charcoal at the hardware store. These people actually have a hard time finding their fuel. And uh, this is a, a wonderful, wonderful success story, but I just thought it tied in very nicely to the idea of things like cooking. You know, we can be a little bit glib about are we choosing to cook in a certain way. Most people in the world are not. Most people in the world are doing things like running out of wood to burn. And something smart like this, which is actually quite simple. I mean, the, one of the ideas behind this was it was something that could be built very easily uh, near to where it's used, um, can really, really change the, the math, if you will, of cooking. So the question that was asked on the flyer that advertised this evening was, uh, you know, can, can we be smart? And I, th I think the answer is yes. We can be smart. We understand the relationship between energy and, and CO2, and, and we need to do the math. We need to think about all the complications. And I'm sorry it's hard, and I'm sorry there isn't one answer, but that's life. And there are people out there who will give you simple answers. And you know what? They're wrong. Um, we all need to go live in Alameda where we've decarbonized our electricity, but seriously, uh, it's something we need to think about. And, and uh, once again, I, I think uh, things like AB32 and other legislation in California is actually addressing that, that sort of thing. It's, you know, do we really want to keep burning coal in Wyoming for our electricity? And we can't make those decisions individually. As a society, we're going to have to think about things like, do we want giant wind farms? Do we want giant solar farms? Do we want to reinvest in, in nuclear energy again in this country? We are going to have to ask those questions. We're going to have to answer yes to at least some of those options. Uh, carbon's in interesting places. Like your water, you may not have thought about it. And when you go golfing, you're highly responsible for a lot of wasted CO2. I say wasted, of course, if you enjoy golfing, it might be worthwhile. 
And there are many, many choices about, you know, should you upgrade your home so that uh, you put in a better furnace so you use less energy? Should you change how you work? Should you change your hobbies? These are all things um, we need to think about. But I think, by and large, um, there's a lot of complexity here. But I think we know what to do. And, and I think I like this idea of, uh, you know, if we lived a little simpler, if we thought a little bit about what we were doing, we could seriously change the amount of CO2 we're, we're emitting. And if we think that's an issue for climate change, it's an issue for the world, not just for us. And, and what we need uh, is, the, la the last bullet thing is, we actually need the will to act. We actually need to think about, okay, today I'm not going to drive, I'm going to ride my bike, or I am going to stop golfing and not contribute to that. And, and this year I'm not going to fly to England to see my parents. Instead, we'll just phone them. And, and uh, you know, we laugh, but th those are the things that we will have to do. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.